For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. I'm Megan Lombardi, a fourth-year general surgery resident. I'm Sasha McEwen, a third-year general surgery resident. I'm Gil Veda, one of the fifth-year general surgery residents. I'm Alex Toledo, one of the transplant surgery attendings. And I'm David Gerber, also one of the transplant surgery attendings here at the University of North Carolina. Today we're going to be talking about a few cases that involve acute onchronic liver disease requiring uh, liver transplantation. So Sasha, do you want to go over the first case? So the first patient is a mid-20s-year-old female that presented to the emergency department with peripheral edema and jaundice semicides. She had no real past medical or surgical history, but did have a pertinent social history of three to four friends daily since she turned 21. On arrival in the emergency room, her labs were available for a total bilirubin of 8.4, an INR of 3, for a meld of 26. She was worked up by a gastroenterologist uh, to determine alkaline versus underlying hepatitis and was determined to be acute on chronic alcohol-related liver failure. Her, the remainder of her workup included an EGD that was without varices. By the time she presented to Transmy Clinic, she had a meld of 30 and mild encephalopathy with controlled ascites. She underwent orthotopic liver transplantation several months later. The next patient is also in her late 20s. She presented with abdominal swelling and pain and was found to have acute alcoholic hepatitis with a meld of 31. She did not have any pertinent medical history, but she was a heavy drinker up to about 20 standard drinks per day. She was ultimately listed with a meld of 41 and was transplanted shortly thereafter, about one month after her initial presentation. Now that we've reviewed these cases briefly, let's get into some questions. So Dr. Gerber, we've seen in the recent years, with, especially with the pandemic, a significant increase in the alcohol cons uh, being consumed by people and especially alcohol-related deaths increased by 25%, I guess, especially in the younger ages. Uh, also, I guess we're seeing more people with advanced liver disease uh, at a young age compared to what we traditionally saw. So how does that affect transplant or what, what, what we can expect about it? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And so certainly alcohol, is, alcohol use disorder has certainly been a contributor to cirrhosis and throughout the liver transplant community. But in the period of time since 2020 and with the rise that you spoke about, um, we suddenly saw a significant increase in the number of patients presenting with acute alcoholic hepatitis or ALCAP or acute on chronic liver disease that hadn't previously been diagnosed with liver disease leading to transplant. So people that getting to a point that were unrecoverable from their um, so historically, alcohol and transplant surgery has always been a kind of controversial topic. So how does this look now kind of pre and post pandemic with known uptake in younger patients? Well, I think if we look at it going all the way back, Megan, to 
you know, even the origins of liver transplantation, it has always been a controversial topic. And part of that revolves around um, how to approach voluntary health risk. And that's evolved over time a little bit. I think it's an important clarification to make that when we look at voluntary health risks, and those are such things as alcohol use or smoking, um, obesity could potentially fit into that uh, category of a voluntary health risk. When we look at some of those uh, factors and we look at how we approach alcohol disease and liver transplantation, uh, I think it's important to note that when those patients are not offered a transplant, it's not because it's a punitive measure. I think the way that it has to be looked at and the way that the transplant community looks at is that we do have a scarce resource and we want to allocate those effectively. So the question is really, not what was the past behavior, but what will the future performance be? What will, um, how will, um, how do those patients predict to, uh, uh, predict to, um, keep those graphs moving forward? So I think that's sort of the framework that, that we look at alcoholic hepatitis with is what markers can we look at to see if that patient would be a good steward of the organ moving forward, as opposed to it being a punitive measure for past behavior. And um, I guess in that context, um, Dr. Uber, we've looked at a lot of different risk factors, but it doesn't seem like we've really identified yeah. specific risk factors, but there are certain things that make us, make us a little more leery to move forward with transplantation. Yeah, we certainly took a very parochial approach in the beginning, requiring six months of abstinence and counseling across the board. And I think, you know, colleagues on the other side of the Atlantic looked at that and saw that our recidivism rates really hadn't, hadn't changed. They were still pretty broad, anywhere 15 to 50 percent, depending on which study you looked at. Um, so even prior to the pandemic, I think we were already starting to reevaluate how to better predict, as you said, who would have difficulty with a diagnosis of alcohol use disorder. And I think some of the early studies here in uh, the States, as well as in Europe, have shown that those patients typically do well in a lot of those concerns about uh, relapse and whether or not the graft outcomes would be as good. We were able to identify that those patients actually, in terms of their graft outcomes, did relatively well. In fact, better than some other indications for, for liver transplantation. Because right. patients have less comorbidities. I think certainly one of the most shocking things over the last three years has been the general age of the patients coming forward with acute on chronic, you know, alcohol-related liver disease. It clearly tilts towards a younger population, patients in their 20s and 30s versus the average age of transplant, which historically had been in the high 40s to the mid-50s. And and, and prior to the pandemic, certainly those with, you know, with alcohol as being an underlying contributor to their liver disease were usually people in their 50s and, and so on. So th this has certainly been startling in the community, as you say. And these are people with a long life ahead of them without the comorbidities get, after getting through a successful liver transplant. Another thing I found interesting in some of these studies that looked at um, some of the early studies as far as who they would accept, the alcohol, the studies that were done of acute alcohol injury 
and mo moving towards transplantation, if you look at the centers that participated in those, they really were a very small fraction of the overall patients evaluated. So they really took the patients with what they viewed as the, the least amount of, of risk factors. So as that, um, as that data gets extrapolated, it's, it's important to note that um, a strict psychosocial review with social work, psychology, psychiatry, um, all that assessment is still uh, incredibly valuable and important moving forward. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. So Dr. Toledo, what social factors are people looking at when evaluating patients with acute alcohol disorder for transplantation versus maybe other um, diseases or you know, disease processes? Well, I think we've mentioned that, that the big risk is, uh, it is the relapse. And part of the reason that it is so controversial is that we don't have perfect data and we don't have perfect predictors to clarify who is most likely to relapse. And in that instance, we, we tend to err on the side of, uh, transplanting patients and, uh, you know, continuing care. So, but there are a few things that do that do stand out in the limited or somewhat flawed data that exists, and a few of those things are uh, past substance abuse. You know, patients who have had past substance abuse are much more likely to have future substance abuse. So, also poly substance abuse is another thing. If it's strictly alcohol, slightly less risk of uh, relapsed. If it's multiple substance abuse, that's a risk factor for. Um, uh, higher rate of uh, return, return to drinking and, and substance abuse in the future. Also, their social support. Patients with strong social support are more likely uh, to be able to avoid alcohol. And then another thing that's used, although the data isn't uh, super convincing, is is this their first major episode of a medical complication related to alcohol disease? If this is, say, they've been in um, a rehabilitation facility three times, they've had several uh, alcohol-related arrests. They've had other hospitalizations related to alcohol, um, yet they, you know, continue to uh, have trouble uh, being away from alcohol. We know that's a risk factor. If this is their first event, the thought is is that uh, there's an opportunity for um, reform and education and, and to try to get them uh, sort of back on track. And then the other factor that uh, is interesting in this particular pop population is this that... Uh, Younger patients have been shown to have a higher rate of relapse in general, as opposed to an older patient who has uh, acute alcohol use disorder. So, uh, and that, uh, unfortunately, especially in the pandemic, is what we've been noticing is that, is that they do tend to be young, and that the younger patients tend to tug on the the heartstrings of the team a little more. So, uh, someone who's, who's young and has ended up in this situation, we we are, you know, I think all collectively a little more sympathetic to uh, that situation and trying to uh, give people opportunity to um, uh, get better and those are some of but those are some of the factors that we look at and say th these people are a little more likely uh, down the road to end up with um, 
returning to alcohol use. And uh, on the other side, we also say, is there, even if they are a little bit of higher risk of returning to alcohol use, what can we do to, um, to help them? Yeah, and the data, right, is really interesting. And we, we certainly, as a community, have taken a very hard line of trying to make sure everybody is abstinent post-transplant, even those who didn't have alcohol use as a contributor to their liver disease. When you look at the outcomes, as Dr. Toledo said, you know, those folks who go back and, and have, you know, we consider late drinking, you know, one drink a day or less, you know, their outcomes are unaffected. It's really only the heavy consumers, those consuming more than, you know, I think the, the metric the community uses like 30 grams of alcohol a day. I don't know how much that translates into in a drink or the ones who end up with more of a progressive liver disease. And, you know, again, there are the optics of the stewardship of an organ and taking care of it, similar to somebody who gets a lung transplant starting to smoke, um, you know, somebody you know, with kidney disease from diabetes, not taking control, taking care of themselves. But these are all, you know, these are health disorders that have to, like Dr. Toledo said, have to be chronically managed for people to not slide back in and injuring the new organ. Yeah. One of the, the things I think a lot of centers or programs are doing as well is as we identify those patients who might uh, be at a high risk of uh, relapse is to, uh, uh, a, try to get to them early in terms of getting them in uh, group therapy or some form of therapy, getting them in that early and making making that sustainable. Uh, we can check some urine markers, making sure social support is in place. But those are the some of the factors that as a transplant team and as stewards of the organ after we've already elected to move forward with the patient to try to make things successful on the on the back end. Dr. Gerber, we've seen recent articles uh, questioning or like comparing like this uh, strict six month rule of not having any alcohol intake and, and comparing like the survival or relapse free survival. How, how do you think that this is going to go forward or and since we're seeing more and more cases of acute and young people requiring liver transplant for alcohol use? Right. And it, you know, certainly the question asked, right, is how have we even got to the six month? you know, period of abstinence as being this arbitrary denominator. And, and I think that's it. There was nothing, no strong data to say that six months was going to determine what a higher or low-risk recidivism rate would be. So prior to the pandemic, there had been renewed interest in the community looking at putting people into counseling and putting them in the right social circumstances rather than creating an arbitrary duration of abstinence to determine where people would be at lower risk or higher risk for recidivism. And, and in a way, then those people who were sicker were not penalized because they didn't meet this arbitrary bar of six months. The Europeans that started this earlier, uh, and again, this goes back probably five or six years, but many of the U.S. programs, including our program here, was already asking that question and, and looking at the individuals. And it's, you know, it was, Dr. Toledo pointed out, um, you know, the psychosocial evaluation and it's the continuity follow-up that is more impactful for these patients. So I think we'll, the short answer is I think we'll see the six-month as a hard and fast line go away and more of a directional input piece for uh, patients being in counseling and abstinent. 
And I think we're probably a little bit more uh, data driven than we were when that that six month absence rule really, I think, dates back to probably the 1980s or 90s. And the thought was partially that the general public at large would have a hard time accepting liver transplantation for patients who were actively drinking or or the perception that these scarce resources were going to people who were involved, who were you know, in their eyes, potentially partially culpable uh, for their condition. So I think there was, I think that perception has changed over the years. And I think there's a greater realization that there's some very strong psychosocial dynamics that are contributory to alcohol use. And there's genetic risk factors, that it's not strictly a voluntary behavior. So I think there's the public opinion has changed somewhat, and there's some surveys and data to, to support that the general public doesn't view that as harshly as the transplant community feared back in the 80s or 90s. Maybe also was part on the surgeons that like didn't know exactly what would happen with the transplants and wanted better outcomes for the for what was like starting as a new therapeutic option and. Yeah, I think um, I think the community at whole is very sensitive to the issue, right? That you know, it's a scarce resource, and trying to make sure that the people receiving it can can use it to its fullest potential um, without alternative therapies, as we've talked about in other behind the knife podcasts, you know, such as xenotransplant, you know, or bringing in ex vivo machine perfusion to expand our donor pool. I think all all of that will change a little bit of how restrictive or uh, paternalistic the community goes, but it takes this going forward. Well, as this is our last episode for Behind the Knife, we'd like to thank Dr. Gerber, Dr. Toledo for buying this idea and, and working throughout these years with us. Uh, it was it was great to produce this content and, and it was very fun to, to record everything. Oh, I think, you know, Guy, I think the thanks really come from us to to you, to Megan and Sasha. Um, this has been an incredible experience, enlightening and educational for us. And certainly through the challenges of the pandemic, this brought us together back in the days that we didn't know we could be in a small sound booth working on our podcast. And, and now we could be maskless just going about our daily lives. And uh, thank you all for listening and letting us, you know, talk to you about a topic that we, we find really interesting over the last couple of years. Thanks. You guys are the best. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.